0: Hello, ladies and gentlemen, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am in Luke chapter 11. I'm, gonna, I'm going to finish the chapter. I'm going to go from verse 37 to 52. We're going to talk about Jesus going to a Pharisee's house and pronouncing six woes on the Pharisees. Our, in our previous audio, we had Jesus being accused of casting out demons by Beelzebul by being in league with Satan himself. And so things are getting pretty hot here between the Pharisees and Jesus. Jesus, of course, points out the utter absurdity of him casting out demons by Beelzebub, Then he points out that these Pharisees are walking in darkness and not in the light. And so now, after that confrontation, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So we start with verse 37 and read 37 and 38. As he was speaking, Jesus a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he, Jesus, went in and reclined at the table. When the Pharisee saw this, he was amazed that he did not first perform the ritual washing before dinner. Now this is not saying he didn't wash his hands as a matter of cleanliness before dinner. It was because he didn't go through all the ablutions, all the ceremonial stuff that Pharisees had to do to show how holy and God-fearing they were. Stupid, superstitious rituals, and Jesus didn't do it. Now, there is an option as to why he didn't do it. Maybe he just didn't care to follow the traditions of the elders, but he wasn't going out of his way to provoke them. That's one option. Or he was deliberately provoking the Pharisees. Well, many people have said that Jesus never never missed an opportunity to provoke these people to show them that their stupid traditions were getting in the way of, between the people and God. So I suspect he deliberately didn't do his ceremonial ablutions. Now, of course, the Pharisees were shocked. How could a rabbi who claims to be a godly man and a godly Jew not do the ablutions before eating? Remember now, we're still in the Judean ministry now. This is leading up to his crucifixion in the last six months of his life. There are no parallel passages for what we're going to do here between verse 37 and 54 in Luke 11 according to A.T. Robertson. However, we can find out some more about the Jews' attitude toward washings washings in other passages in the Scripture at other occasions, Mark 7, verses 2 through 4. They, the Pharisees, observed that some of his disciples were eating their bread with unclean, that is, unwashed, hands. And here's a nice parenthetical note in verse 3 in Mark 7. For the Pharisees, in fact all the Jews, will not eat unless they wash their hands ritually, keeping the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they have washed. And there are many other customs they have received and keep, like the washing of cups, jugs, copper utensils, and dining couches. The, was- the Pharisees remind me of Howard Hughes. They were was always washing things. Trying to get rid of those germs. Matthew fifteen nine. Jesus says, they worship me, the Jews, worship me in vain, teaching as doctrines the commands of men, now, it's referring to worshiping God, in vain, teaching as doctrines the commands of men, the traditions of men, which are, of course, not the doctrines of the Old Testament Mosaic law. Why did this Pharisee ask Jesus to his house? Well, perhaps he was genuinely moved by Jesus' teaching, according to John Yell, but Gill also raises the other possibility is maybe his motive was to entrap Jesus. And it was, would be easier to entrap Jesus in private because Jesus, in that case, would not have the crowds behind him. But whatever his reason was, Jesus was in there and he was perfectly willing to try to win over his enemies. He didn't refuse a chance to eat with the Pharisees, even though they were his enemies, obviously. He didn't lump them all together as hopeless. Remember, Nicodemus was a Pharisee. And that was a beautiful conversion, or the beginning of a beautiful conversion, as recorded in John 3. Now, they had a dinner here. The Greek word there is ariston, which is the first meal of the day. Adam Clark says that's a light brunch. The chief meal of the day was dapnon, which was after the heat of the day in the evening. Well, that doesn't matter, really. They were eating. We go to verse 39 through 40. But the Lord said to him, the Lord said to the Pharisees, quote, now you Pharisees cleaned the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and evil. Fools! Didn't he who made the outside make the inside too? Now the application here is clean. The Pharisees were clean on the outside, apparently, because of all their ritual r- ritualistic cleansings they did. And Jesus is making an analogy. He says, what, and let me just expand on that a little bit. What if I served you a cup? of water, let's say, and at the bottom you could see these little bugs running around, a little bit of dirt, a little bit of oil, a little bit of chemicals, pollution, toxic stuff, nastiness on the inside, but by golly, I had the outside spick and span sparkling, sparkly clean. You would say I was an idiot. Well, that's what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees. You're idiots. You worry all about whether somebody's washed their hands or not. And inside you're just the greediest bunch of evil bunch of people I've ever met. So he finishes up by calling them fools. Didn't he, God, who made the outside of the cup, make the inside of the cup too? And the analogy is, didn't God who made the outside of you Pharisees also make the inside too? So you're liable for what's on the inside as well as what's on the outside too. Now notice that Jesus called them fools. In another place he says, you call somebody fool, you're liable for the judgment. Well, the difference is, is that when he calls somebody a fool, that's perfectly okay, but when the Pharisees were calling people fools they were doing it with malice or forethought. So there's a distinction. There's no absolute prohibition against calling somebody a fool if they're actually a fool. Jesus did it. But what Jesus did in that other passage, I don't have the site in front of him, but you know where he says don't ever call anybody a fool, you'll be in liable of you'll be liable of hellfire if you do. Raka, I think the Aramaic is. Well, that's talking about doing it with malice in your heart. Here, Jesus is not doing it with malice in his heart. He's trying to wake these people up. He's speaking the truth to them. Now, let me mention that there are six woes that we're going to go through here in the Pharisee's house. There are also six woes in Matthew 23, which is the lead up to the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24. And so in Matthew 23, Jesus is in the temple on on the Tuesday of Passion Week and he's blasting the Pharisees and he gives them several woes also. these Those woes are distinct from these woes. These, these woes are done in a house. But the point is, he's getting near the end of his ministry and he's really increasing the heat on these Pharisees. In Matthew 23:25, he said to the Pharisees, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. In Luke 11, in our verse here, verse 39, he says, You're full of greed and evil, greed and self indulgence in Matthew 23. So you see, the Pharisees were evil people. All right, so he calls them stupid because it's so stupid to clean the outside of a cup without cleaning the inside, too. We go to verse 41. Jesus continues, But give from what is within to the poor, and then everything is clean for you. Now that within is problematic. It seems kind of strange to say that. Give from what is within to the poor. The Greek word, according to Adam Clark, is very difficult to translate. The Greek word is ta and non-ta. Very difficult to translate. NIV translates it this way with a loose translation, within the dish. But give from what is within the dish to the poor. In other words, the expression within the dish means, is referring to the reference reference point of the analogy. The Pharisees were like a cup. So he says, take the inside of the cup, Pharisees. In other words, take what's in your heart and give it to the poor. And I think that's reasonable. Adam Clark says it could be take from what's within your houses to give to the poor or take what's within your power to give to the poor. I don't know. How about what's within your heart, which again would be basically what the NIV version said within the dish is is a symbol of what's within your heart. So inside of you, try to make yourself clean. And why does he say give to the poor? Because... He's aiming at the Pharisees' chiefs in here. They're totally greedy. They're grinding the face of the poor in the ground, giving them th- laws that there's no way they can keep. And in some fashion, which I'm not really aware of, but somehow they're amassing money for themselves and they're not giving it to, people, to poor people when they needed it. There was no charity in the Pharisees' heart. Jesus said, look, guys, you want to be clean, start giving to the poor. Luke 11, verse 42. But woe to you, Pharisees. Now, this is the first of the six woes in the Pharisee's house. But woe to you, Pharisees. You give a tenth of mint, rue, and every kind of herb, and you bypass justice and love for God. These things you should have done without neglecting the others. Now, this is a heck of a thing for a dinner guest to do to a Pharisee. Pronounce woes on them. He was a guest in his, in his host's house, and he pronounces six horrible woes on them. Jesus was no coward, ladies and gentlemen. He stood for the truth more than anything else, more than hospitality, more than hurting somebody's feelings. He stood for the truth. Now, these herbs that are mentioned, mint, rue, and every kind of herb, those are little tiny, tiny products of a garden. You you, you grow mint, they're just used for spices. They're not used for consumption uh, as, a, as a staple, and so they were very small. And so Jesus is saying the smallest little thing that you grow, you, you, you tithe on it, while you're, and you're very scrupulous about that, but then you neglect basic ma- matters of compassion and love. Now, Jesus said you should have done these small things without neglecting the others. In other words, you should do the big ones without neglecting the small things. You should love your fellow Jews and your fellow man you should have done that, but without neglecting the others. And then this raises a problem because where in the law does it say to tithe the mint, uh, to to tithe one tenth of your mint and rue and your spices in your garden? It doesn't say that actually in the Old Testament in the Mosaic Law. It says it in the traditions of the elders and the Pharisees. So why would Jesus be saying, well, don't neglect the traditions of the Pharisees while you're trying to love other people? That would not square with Jesus' constant attitude of breaking the traditions of the elders. In fact, just then, a few minutes earlier, he had walked in there and didn't wash his hands like he was supposed to, according to the traditions of the elders. So the only way you can answer that, it seems to me, is that what Jesus is saying is don't neglect the Mosaic law. Keep the law, but remember to, to, to care for other people while you're doing it. The Mosaic Law in Leviticus 27:30 says this: Every tenth of the land's produce, grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. So Jesus is not complaining about tithing a tenth of your produce. I think what he was pointing to was the, the way the Pharisees did it. They tithe even the little tiniest thing. They, they, they interpreted the law so rigidly, as James and Fawcett and Brown said. They were so rigid about interpreting Leviticus. But they weren't rigid about caring for people. So Jesus is very careful to say, I don't want you to break the law. Because obviously this is what they're going to accuse him of, breaking the law. And Jesus was constantly saying, I'm not breaking the law. I'm not breaking the law of Moses. I'm breaking your traditions of men, but I'm not breaking the law of Moses. He would constantly make that distinction. So I suspect that's what he's saying here. Don't neglect the law of Moses. He's not worried about, he's not telling them to don't neglect the traditions of the Pharisees. Luke 11:43, Woe to you, Pharisees! And this is the second of the six woes in the Pharisees' house. You love the front seat in the synagogues and greeting in the marketplaces. The front seats of the synagogue, the seats of the senior men, were turned towards the people. Their backs were toward the ark, the, the box where the holy books were kept. They sat on a bench in front of the ark, so they could be seen by all in the synagogue. Honor. And also the place of honor at feast. Matthew twenty-three, six, in the other woe passage, they, the Pharisees, love the place of honor at banquets, the front seats in the synagogues. This reminds me in China. There's something about Eastern culture that loves this place of honor thing. I remember sitting in the right rear seat of a taxi over and over again, till I uh, I was always put there, and I never understood why. I thought it was they thought they were keeping me safer back there from the crazy people that were driving in the cities of China. Turns out that the foreigner, who is going to get great honor from the locals, from the Chinese people, the right rear seat is the place of honor, and that's why I was always sitting there. Also, if you go into a banquet, you, you walk in through the door and you see a round table at 12 o'clock high, that's the seat of honor at the banquet. I never realized I was always sitting at 12 o'clock high, every single meal. There was a reason for it. It's so a seat of honor. Well, if they seat you in a seat of honor, I guess there's nothing that can be done about it, but to crave that sort of thing... That shows there's something wrong with you, you crave fame, I remember a Chinese professor wanted to he he published a book of mine and he and he was trying to promote me he wanted me to go around speaking at conferences and stuff in china he says i'm going to make you famous in China and I looked at him I said uh, Robert, why do I want to be famous in China I don't want to be famous in China. anybody who wants to be famous is a fool all you got to do is look at the lives of rich and famous people that harassed by paparazzi, every little stumble they make in public is the subject of a tweeter storm, a Twitter storm, and they're crucified publicly all the time? No. I don't think it's such a great deal to be famous. But these rabbis did. They loved it, these these Pharisees. Luke 11, verse 44. Woe to you! This is the third of the six woes. Woe to you! You are like unmarked graves. The people who walk over them don't know it. Now, this is referring to a legal command in the Old Testament law, Numbers 19.16, which says this, Anyone in the open field who touches a person who has been killed by the sword or has died, or even who even touches a human bone or a grave, will be unclean for seven days. Now, since if you touched a grave you would be unclean, and the Jews didn't want that to happen, they would whitewash the tombstone markers to mark the grave so people wouldn't accidentally touch the grave and become unclean and couldn't offer their sacrifice in the temple. But Jesus says, you're like unmarked graves. There's no whitewash on your graves. It's unmarked so that people walk and they come in contact with you and they don't realize that they're defiling themselves. And so this is the point. If in the Old Testament, if you if you accidentally walked on an unmarked grave, you would be unclean for seven days. In the, in the New Testament times, If you came in contact with a Pharisee and didn't realize he was a grave full of bones and dead men, dead men's bones and evil and death, you didn't realize he was full of death. You just thought he was a righteous, holy person because he's keeping the law and he's doing all these ablutions and ceremonial washings and he's keeping the laws. Oh, he must be holy. And people don't realize that what they're stepping on when they come into contact with such a Pharisee is death. They're being polluted by death. Ooh. This is somewhat of a slam for the Pharisee who is hosting this event. By the way, this woe here talks about the Pharisees being like unmarked graves. It's easy to confuse that with Matthew 23:27, which is also another passage of woe. Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which is the opposite of unmarked, whitewashed tombs, which appear beautiful on the outside, but inside are full of dead men's bones and every impurity. It's just a different analogy, so that's why doesn't contradict it all, it's just he's making a different point there, that they're shiny and white on the outside, so pure, so holy, so religious, but on the inside they're filth and death. Let me summarize this verse with a quote from Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. Quote, The plausible exterior of the Pharisees kept people from perceiving the pollution they contracted from coming in contact with such corrupt characters. That's why they were unmarked graves, getting ready to be walked on. Chapter... 11 verse 45 of Luke. One of the experts in the law answered him, Teacher, when you say these things, you insult us. Oh, poor baby. Their exalted majesties were being criticized for their hypocrisy. Well, of course he was insulting them. They deserve to be insulted. you insult insulted us. Sounds like some of these snowflakes on college campus these days with their trigger warnings. Oh, you said something. You offended me. You said that 2 plus 2 equals 4. That's offensive to me because I believe that 2 plus 2 equals 5. Well, that's kind of, I would put this expert in the law, this Pharisee here, is in that category. Blooming idiot. Luke 11, verse 46. Then he, Jesus, said, Woe to you, experts in the law. This is how Jesus responded. The guy says, You hurt my feelings. You are insulting us. And Jesus then doubles down on him. Woe to you, expert in the law. This is the fourth of the six woes. You load people with burdens that are hard to carry, yet you yourselves don't touch these burdens with one of your fingers. Jesus was no namby-pamby, folks. He let folks hold it when it was necessary. He was not an Andy Stanley. Now how did Jesus load people with burdens, excuse me, the Pharisees load people with burdens that were hard to carry? They added rules and regulations to the authentic law of Moses. And then they did nothing to help others keep them. But they invented ways for themselves to circumvent the rules and regulations. This is according to the NIV Study Bible. I've got an example of a burden. This is just something I made up here. Well, uh, not completely. The the Pharisees had a rule you couldn't spit on the Sabbath because when the hawker hit the ground, it would split the dust into a pile on the left and the right. Well, that split dust is a a furrow, so that means you have plowed on the Sabbath day, which, of course, is utterly absurd. And so I thought to myself, well, you know, if I was a Jew, and let's say I had bronchitis, and I'm hawking up a bunch of mucus, and and it's Saturday, and I want to spit on the ground. Oh, I can't do that. I'll be unholy. So what do I have to do? i got a swallow of a hawker, which makes me cough more and makes me sicker. That would be an example of how a stupid tradition adds a burden to the people. There's some other scriptures that emphasize this characteristic of the Pharisees adding burdens to the people in other contexts, other situations, not necessarily in the Pharisee's house. These are not parallel passages. Matthew 15, 2. Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? for they don't wash their hands when they eat, Matthew 23, 4. They tie up heavy loads that are hard to carry and put them on people's shoulders, but they themselves aren't willing to lift a finger to move them, Acts fifteen, ten. Now then, why are you testing God by putting a yoke on the disciples' necks that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? At the Jerusalem Council, of course, when they declared themselves free from all those traditions, they kept a few things to avoid stumbling in offense, but basically they said, we're not going to keep all those traditions. This is how they referred to it. Don't, don't test God. Don't test God with, uh, laws that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear. Nobody's able to bear the kind of stupidity the Pharisees were putting on people. Luke 11 verses 47 through 48. Woe to you. There's the theme again. Woe to you. This is the fifth of the six woes. You build monuments to the prophets, and your fathers killed them. Therefore, you are witnesses that you approve the deeds of your fathers, for they kill them, and you build their monuments. Now, the first question that we have is, why would building a monument to a dead prophet show that the Jews approve the deeds of their fathers who killed those prophets? It's kind of silly to build a monument to a dead prophet when your hallowed ancestors are the ones who killed the prophet. Well, it was because it was hypocrisy. Well, the answer, according to... To John Gill is that building a monument to the tomb kept alive the memory of their father's crimes because they were honoring the fact that the prophets were dead and why were they dead because their ancestors killed them so by trying to perpetuate the holiness and sanctity of the prophet and trying to thereby bask in the glow of these holy prophets the descendants of the murderers of the prophets were actually keeping alive the memory of the foul deeds that were done in killing the prophets. So, they testify, they're witnesses, Jesus said, that you approved the deeds of your fathers. They killed them, and you built the monuments. So, when you build the monuments, you're, you're memorializing a murder that your ancestors did. And again, the point is to show what total hypocrites they are, to say, oh, we love the memory of this prophet, despite the fact that the prophet was murdered for bringing the word of God. And of course, this is what's about to happen to Jesus. The last—he's a pro, Jesus is a prophet, priest, and king. He's a prophet, and they're about to kill him. They were just like—they were acting just like their forefathers had done. Outwardly, the Jews built or rebuilt memorials to prophets, but inwardly they rejected the Christ the prophets announced. So outwardly, they lived in opposition to what the prophets taught, just as their forefathers had done. They were opposing the Messiah Jesus. Now, there's a verse in the. Matthew 23, that other woe passage, that where Jesus puts into the mouth of the Pharisees an, an, an admission that their fathers had killed the prophets. Matthew 23:30 says this, and you say, and you, of course, is the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes and the experts in the law, and you say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we wouldn't have taken part with them in shedding the prophets' blood. In other words. We're holy, we wouldn't have killed the prophets like our fathers did, so they, the, the Jews admitted that their fathers had killed the prophets. But Jesus wasn't going to let them get away with the, of, of them trying to distance themselves from those murders, because they were acting just like their fathers who murdered the prophets because they're getting ready to murder Jesus. Now this idea of murdering the prophets, interestingly enough, is all through the New Testament scriptures, but if you go through the Old Testament and actually find examples, there's only a couple. Now there's lots of cases where people tried to kill the prophets and failed, like for example Jeremiah was thrown into a cistern. Uh, for example, Elisha, one of the kings of Samaria, the northern kingdom, went after Elisha. and Elisha didn't get him, and Jezebel tried to kill Elijah, for example. She didn't manage to succeed. So they were constantly trying to kill the prophets, but actually killing them? Well, let's look at that. Before we look at well, let me get, let me give you the example in the Old Testament. 1 Kings eighteen four, For when Jezebel destroyed the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and provided them with bread and water. Obadiah was a good prophet, and he was saving a few prophets, but the first part of that verse says, when Jezebel destroyed the prophets of the Lord. So there's some killing of the prophets right there. And there's also where Jesus said... In Matthew 23, verses 35, he says, You're guilty of all the righteous blood on shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah. All right, now, let's go through New Testament scriptures that talk about the Old Testament Jewish ancestors killing prophets. Matthew 23, verses 35 and 37. This is Jesus speaking on Tuesday of Passion Week. To the Jews the Jewish leaders, so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. Matthew 21, verse 35. The vine growers took his slaves and beat one and killed another and stoned a third. This is from the parable of the vineyard, or sometimes it's called the parable of the tenants. The slaves who were beaten and killed were the prophets, stood for the prophets who were sent to Israel. Matthew 22, 6, and the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. This is the parable of the wedding feast. And the slaves who were mistreated and killed were representative of the prophets. First Thessalonians 2, 15, this is the apostle Paul speaking now. He refers to the Jews who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to the law of men. So Paul recognized that the Jesus killed not only the prophets, but Jesus himself, the ultimate prophet. Acts 7.52, this is Stephen speaking. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. And in Revelation 16.6, And if you take an orthodox, preterist view of Revelation, which I do, you will know that Revelation is written against two entities, the Roman Empire and the apostate Jewish kingdom of Israel. For they poured out the blood of saints and prophets. You have given them blood to drink. And that fits right in with the fame. The Jews love to kill the prophets, the Jewish leaders. Luke 11, verse 49, as we continue, because of this, the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill and persecute. Now, this is an interesting verse because of that phrase, the wisdom of God. The NIV, which put, tries to put these Hebrewisms into normal English, put, translates it this way, God in his wisdom. Because of this, God in his wisdom said, because Jesus is the wisdom of God, as John Gill says, 1 Corinthians one twenty four. Yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is God's power and God's wisdom. Christ is God's wisdom. So, So that means that Jesus is the wisdom of God. So in this verse, we can read it this way in verse 49 of Luke 11. Because of this the wisdom of God, who is Jesus, said this, quote, I will send them prophets and apostles and some of, them that, some of them they will kill and persecute. Now, the reason we know probably that this is Jesus is because nowhere in the Old Testament is there a quote that says, I will send them prophets and apostles and some of them they will kill and persecute. He's also using New Testament language too, prophets and apostles. So Jesus is telling them in, as a prediction, look. I'm going to send you guys prophets and apostles, and you're going to try to kill and persecute them. You're going to kill, succeed in killing and persecuting some of them. Now Jesus said the same thing in Matthew 23 in slightly different language. He said to the Jews, "This is why I'm sending you prophets, sages, and scribes." He uses Old Testament language there. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will flog in your synagogues and hound from town to town. Which is, of course, exactly what happened until 8070 when the persecuting Jewish rabbinic kingdom was wiped out by the Romans in 80, 70, But until then, they persecuted the apostles. Read the book of Acts. Constantly, they would go into the synagogues and, and, and into the towns, and the Jewish synagogues would go out and harass the apostles, sometimes turning them over to the Roman authorities and so forth. So this prediction of Jesus was directly fulfilled. He, jesus uses the phrase sages and scribes that was an old testament terminology because but basically it's parallel with apostles and prophets so apostles and prophets apostles and prophets in verse 11 verse 40 luke 11 verse 49 so jesus is basically saying his apostles and prophets are to the new israel what sages and scribes were to the old israel the wise men the leaders luke 11 verse 50 through 51 so that this generation, I guess I better pick up what the sow is there for. Some of them, in verse 49, it says, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill and persecute, verse 50, so that this generation may be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world. In other words, all the murders that, are, that the Jewish fathers have gotten away with, well, you're going to pay for it, guys, because you're going to do the worst thing of all. You're going to kill Jesus. Now, there's that phrase, this generation is used over and over again, especially in Matthew 23. It's referring to that generation of the Jews who killed Jesus. It's not referring to all the subsequent generations of the Jews who lived in the Middle Ages and who were persecuted mercilessly by the Catholic Church. I'm sorry all that happened, but that is that had absolutely nothing to do with what Jesus meant. He didn't mean for the Jews to get persecuted for centuries later. It was that particular generation who killed Jesus I mean, after all, if all Jews were to be held responsible for the death of Jesus, then Jesus' own disciples would be killed because all of them were Jewish. All right, so that generation was going to be responsible for all the prophets who were killed since the foundation of the world from the blood of Abel. Now, in Matthew 23, it says all righteous people, and Abel was righteous. But here it mentions that it says that he's a prophet. This generation may be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets, sheds since the foundation of, of the world from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. Well, let's start at the beginning with the blood of Abel. The well, first problem we have is how is Abel a prophet? Well, you know that Abel was Cain's brother. Genesis 4, 8, Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother and killed him. So there's Abel's righteous blood being killed. He was righteous because he offered up blood sacrifices to God. But how was he a prophet? John Gill says he gave a prophetical hint of the sacrifice of Christ. He was more like a type, and a type could be considered a prophecy. He was a type because he offered a blood sacrifice. I guess that's the best solution that I've been able to find. I guess that's all right with me. Now we go to the the last of the prophets who were killed, according to the Jewish ancestors, by the Jewish ancestors. That would be the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah. Now this is controversial as much division of opinion. I have got one, two, three, four, five, six possibilities, most of which I think are pretty, are not very strong options. I'm going to go with the majority opinion, the one that the NIV Study Bible, James Fawcett and Brown, John Gill goes with, and that is this Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, is actually Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada. We're going to have to deal with the problem. The, his father got different names here, Barakiah and Jehoiada. But we'll see that Zechariah the son of Jehoiada, was killed in the temple courtyard, which is sounds like what Jesus is saying in Luke eleven, fifty one, where it says that Zechariah perished between the altar and the sanctuary, which is in the temple courtyard. So I think that ties it that, to here. So let me read Second Chronicles 24, 20 through twenty-two, and we'll and we'll get the story of Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada. Jehoiada was the, the guy that saved King Joash from murder by his mother Amaziah, if my memory serves correctly, and he was, he, he was a confidant of King Joash. 2 Chronicles 24 20-22. The Spirit of God took control of Zechariah, son of Jehoiada, Jehoiada the priest. He stood above the people and said to them, This is what God says. Why are you transgressing the Lord's commands and you do not prosper? Because you have abandoned the Lord. He has abandoned you. But they conspired against him and stoned him at the king's command in the courtyard of the Lord's temple. That's King Joash did this. King Joash didn't remember the kindness that Zechariah's father Jehoiada had extended to him, but killed his son. While he, the son, Jehoiada, was dying, he said, May the Lord see and demand an account. I think that's what it's referring to because it just sounds like it, because it was done in the courtyard of the Lord's temple and it pretty, pretty dramatic. you got a king that was being totally ungrateful toward his benefactor, killed his benefactor's son. Also, Abel, to, Abel is in Genesis. Zechariah, excuse me, this murder of Jehoiada. Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, happened in Chronicles, and Chronicles was at the end of the Old Testament according to the Hebrew arrangement. So the expression is like from Genesis to Revelation you've been killing prophets. From Je- Abel, Genesis to end of the Hebrew scriptures, i.e. Revelation, and in our modern parlance, you've been killing you've been killing prophets. This is according to the NIV study Bible. Now let's deal with the problem of how the son of Berechiah jives with the son of Jehoiada. Jesus said, you killed prophets from Abel to Zechariah the son of Berechiah, whereas in 2 Chronicles, Zechariah is said to be the son of Jehoiada. How do we account for that? Well, the answer is fairly simple. It's not uncommon for a man to have two names. The Hebrews were very, very, very loose about naming people. Think about Simon Peter. You got Simon, you got Peter, you got Cephas, you got Petros. Cephas in Aramaic, Petros in Greek. It's real easy to get people's names mixed up, and I suspect that's what happened here. He just had two names and one. Jesus quoted one name, the Old Testament scripture quoted another. Here's some other options of who this, who this man, Zechariah, was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. It was a fresh murder unrecorded in scripture. That's an option. We just don't know if it's just Jesus mentioned it, but it wasn't written in the Old Testament canon. Or it could have been Zechariah, the son of Baruch. Now, this is a guy in New Testament times. He died right before the 70 AD siege of Jerusalem. He was a rich, illustrious, righteous man who was a friend of liberty. But the problem is, you got the same problem with the names. Baruch is not the same as Berechiah. And it says murdered in our passage here in 11 verses 50 and 51. All the righteous people who were murdered, or the blood was shed, past tense, and the, and then. Going up to 87, 70, his future, not past. And he was killed in the middle of the temple, not between the temple and the altar. And he, and he actually wasn't killed by the official Jewish body, the Sanhedrin. Two zealots killed him, this particular Zechariah, son of Baruch. The Sanhedrin actually acquitted Zechariah, the son of Baruch, of treason. So that's not it. Zechariah, the father of John, the Baptist. This is interesting. There was an old tradition. And this is why people say, say that Jesus is quoting this old tradition. Which, John Gill points out, the tradition is not reliable, but here's the tradition. There was a place at the temple appropriated to virgins, and, and and that Mary, the mother of our Lord, after his birth, came and took her place there as a virgin. So she's there, she has a kid, everybody knew she had a kid, and she went to the place that was, was reserved for virgins, kind of like a handicapped parking place. Now the problem is, you, if you're a virgin and you got a kid, there's a problem there because virgins don't have kids usually, so the Jews knew that she had a child, they objected to Mary being in the special place for virgins. But Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, of course, who was acquainted with the mystery of the Incarnation, he was right there in in the middle of it, he knew that she actually was a virgin. So he ordered her to keep her place. Don't you leave, Mary. These people don't know what they're talking about. And and upon which the Jews slew Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, on the spot. I just tell you that because it's nonsense, but it's an interesting tradition. So... There's no evidence anywhere that Zechariah was ever slain by the Jews. Nowhere can we find evidence that Zechariah's father was Berechiah. How about Zechariah the prophet who wrote the book of Zechariah? Zechariah 1.1. His advantage to him is he's actually called Zechariah the son of Berechiah, but where was he ever killed between the altar and the sacrifice? There's another um, more obscure Zechariah in Isaiah 8.2. Zechariah the son of Berechiah. And again, where was he ever killed at the temple precincts? I don't even know anything about this guy. So that, the other options are so weak. I think that we're going to have to say that this Zechariah Je- is the son of Jehoiada, who is the same thing as Berechiah, and that's who Jesus was referring to. It actually doesn't really make a whole bit of difference. The point is, is Jesus is saying, you guys have killed people all through the old covenant, all through the Hebrew scriptures. And, and this generation, this particular generation of Jews and Pharisees, whom I'm talking to right now, you guys are going to pay for this. In other words, you're going to die, which they did in AD 70. If they didn't die before that, they most probably died in AD 70. Let's go to Matthew, uh, Luke 11 52. Woe to you, experts in the law. This is the sixth of the, of the six woes. Woe to you, experts in the law. You have taken away the key of knowledge. You didn't go in yourselves, and you hindered those who were going in. In other words, people going into a place to learn something, to know something, to know God. The Pharisees took the key away. Uh, He says, you know, it's one thing if you didn't go in yourselves, that's bad, but you're keeping other people from getting in there. That's worse. The Pharisees made it impossible to know what the scriptures meant. How did they do this? They overlaid the scriptures with the traditions of men. They created a false theology. Here's some examples. Their theology of the Messiah. They expected a glorious earthly kingdom. That's not what the Old Testament Scripture said. They never read the suffering servant passages in Isaiah, for example. They had a false theology of sin. They said if something happened to someone, it's because they sinned. They had a strong view of karma, if you will. Oh, you, you, something bad happened to you? That's because you did something evil. In other words, like Job's false friends, they had the perfect pharisaical mindset. The Pharisees didn't realize that a lot of times bad things happen to good people, not because they sin, just because they live in a sinful world. And so quit. In, in addition to their woe because of the bad things that happen to them, you're laying guilt on their heads because the bad things happen to them. This is perverse and evil. They had, the Pharisees had a bad view of the universality of God's kingdom. They said Gentiles were dogs, and they're not getting into the kingdom. They completely screwed up the gospel of God. They took away the key of knowledge. Luke 11, verse 53 and 54. When he, Jesus, left there, the scribes of the Pharisees began to oppose him fiercely. Is that a big surprise? And to cross-examine him about many things. They're still trying to catch him. They were lying in wait for him to trap him in something he said. That didn't bother Jesus. He always be- That's what I love about Jesus. When all these big mouths came after him, all these lawyers and experts in the law, he beat them every single time. There was nothing they could do. Not even at his crucifixion, they were still trying to get him, and they never caught him on anything. All right, let's just run through one, two, three, four New Testament passages showing how the religious leaders are trying to trap Jesus. Luke 6, verse 11. They, however, were filled with rage and started discussing with one another what they might do to Jesus. Luke 19, verses 47 through 48. Every day he was teaching in the temple complex. The chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people were looking for a way to destroy him but they could not find a way to do it, because all the people were captivated by what they heard. Luke 20, verses 19 through 20. Then the scribes and the chief priests looked for a way to get their hands on him that very hour, because they knew he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. They watched closely and sent spies who pretended to be righteous, so they could catch him in what he said, to hand him over to the governor's rule and authority. Luke 22, verse 2. The chief priests and the scribes were looking for a way to put him to death, because they were afraid of the people. Well, there you have it. Everywhere he goes, Pharisees are trying to get him. Here is how they would try to get him. There was two ways. One is they tried to get him to say something that would sound like seditions to the Romans, so the Romans could execute him for political sedition. Or they would try to get him for speaking heresy against the Jewish laws and traditions. So therefore, the Sanhedrin would get him. Of course, the problem with trying to get him on religious grounds is that they didn't have the right for capital punishment to kill somebody for violating the, the religious laws, so their preference was trying to get him for, for sedition. But the religious leaders failed to catch Jesus. As I said, he won all the time, and, and one reason he, he won is because they were trying to prove a false proposition. Jesus was not a seditious revolutionary. He was not a heretic. He was fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies, and he had no intention and no desire to overthrow the Roman government, as bad as that government might have been. His kingdom was not of this world. Now, this verse says that the Pharisees, the scribes and the Pharisees, opposed Jesus fiercely, quote-unquote fiercely. This is not surprising considering what Jesus had said to them. They found themselves unmasked in front of a lot of people. Pretty embarrassing. Now, let's make an application here. Did Jesus think like a lot of appeasers today think, like Andy Stanley, for example? Well, we're just not going to talk about anything like that. Homosexuality, because that might get our culture upset. Jesus could have avoided the unpleasantness just by keeping quiet. And what is most of the church doing today about the moral filth that's, that's washing through the land like, like crapola in a sewer? What is the typical evangelical pastor doing? He's worried about keeping his tax exempt status, and so he's not going to say anything that might cause a lawsuit or a demonstration against him by the lickabut community. Oh no, he's not going to do that. Jesus was my hero, buddy. He stood up for what was right. He stood up to the death. His was an amazing, amazing ministry. We often think about what he did to be killed in order to save us from our sins, which of course is quite valid, but I don't think we notice so much what he did in order to get himself killed. He preached the truth and he got the truth out when it was completely encrusted over by these evil people's traditions who had thrown away the key to knowledge. He said, no, I'm going to teach the truth, and the people are going to hear it. And we today, 2,000 years later, know the truth because of his courage. Hope you enjoyed this audio. We'll take up Luke chapter 12 in the next one.